0: Well, today I come to the fifth and the final topic in my current series, Questions About Our Faith. And today's question could probably be taken in a few different ways, so I'm going to do my best to get at it from a couple of different angles. It's a question about the book of Revelation. What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to read it? What meaningful contribution does it make as part of the larger canon of Scripture to vital everyday faith as it's lived on the ground? The book of Revelation is indeed a bit of a strange and mysterious book of the Bible compared to most of the rest of what's in there. And it's very closely associated in most people's minds with things that are to come. What lies ahead? The the end of history, you might say. So if part of the question for today, as I understand it, is just revelation, what's the deal? Then the other part might have more to do with this aspect of the book's content. What does it really teach us about these things? What should we believe about these things? And how might that make any difference for how I live my life? today? Those are good and important questions, I think, and not least because there have been times in the church's history when confusion about these things or when division over these things has proved counterproductive, both for our mission as well as in respect to our unity as a church. And so today I want to do a little bit more in my sermon by way of teaching about this less familiar part of the Bible and of our faith. But by way of doing so, I want to talk as well about how we as a faithful people might best approach this kind of content within the Bible and how we might make constructive use of it. Now, as esoteric as these questions might sound, I want to say at the outset that behind them, Lies some very practical and important concerns that I dare say most of us ask ourselves every single day. Questions like, where does this world seem to be headed? Or where do the guiding forces of history seem to be taking us? Is it good or is it bad? We ask questions like that all the time when we try to read the trends in the world around us, watch the news, or look into our investments. Those are natural and important questions to be asking, and I don't think we could survive very long without asking questions about the future or doing some careful thinking and planning in light of the trends that we see. The question at the heart of what I'm talking about today, though, is whether our faith should have any input here. And what would it have us set at the center of our expectations? Now, although the question I received was about the book of Revelation specifically, and notice, by the way, that the name of the book is in the singular, Revelation, not Revelations, I included within today's Scripture readings a portion of Jesus' own Olivet Discourse to call our attention to the fact that the kind of things that we're talking about today don't just appear in the book of Revelation. They're found in Jesus' own mouth as well as in Paul's letters, in the book of Daniel, and several of the prophets, and even in the book of Genesis, and Numbers in the Old Testament. What we're talking about here today concerns how to approach the Bible's quote-unquote apocalyptic parts. That word apocalyptic meaning those writings like Revelation that are both highly shrouded in symbolic visionary discourse and imagery and are heavily oriented toward God's designs for the future. In fact, the title of the book of Revelation in Greek is Apocalypse, which is where we get that word. It means a disclosure, an opening up to humans of things only known by God. And when theologians approach these sorts of topics involving the content of our Christian hope, they call it eschatology. Eschatology. What the church teaches about the end. If we look back at the scriptures that we read for this morning, we hear Jesus quite clearly talking about eschatology and answering this question that's posed by Peter. Peter says, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? And in answer to that, if you go back and read the whole chapter, Jesus talks in great detail about the coming of wars and and of persecutions as well as vague references to, to trials and tribulations and a desolating sacrilege. And where our selection picks back up He puts a spotlight on the fact that after all these things happen, quote, unquote, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And the sign that that he relates after that is somewhat mysterious about discerning the signs of the times. From the fig tree, learn its lesson, he says. As soon as its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near. Cryptic words. Cryptic imagery. Just like what's alluded to in the beginning of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show His servants what must take place. Now when I was entering graduate school back in the late 1990s, this was a hot topic that People in divinity schools and religion departments within universities were talking a great deal about. There was a lot of popular millenarianism popping up all around our culture back then, around the approach of the year 2000, if you remember. One of the hottest selling book series back then was Left Behind, which was a multi volume dramatization, almost a historical fiction of sorts, of a particular understanding of Revelation. And its eschatology. Back then, as well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were just about to finally be published, a big chunk of them anyway, after years and years and years of anticipation and speculation about what they might contain, as well as the promise that they were full of material comparable to the Book of Revelation in this way. And there was still a lot of talk and study as well about what to make of what happened in the 1990s with David Koresh and the Waco compound and other groups like that. And there was interest in understanding better what fuels paranoid obsession with this sort of material in certain kinds of settings. And the general tenor of a lot of that discussion in books that I was exposed to was that this was something that makes Christian faith seems strange and exotic. That it's an area of our confession that's fraught with feelings of fear and danger and divisiveness. And in certain sectors, all of that is true, of course. But not nearly as true of the entirety of the church as it is in those remote pockets. Have you ever actually noticed how little is said about the end in the creeds of our faith. The Apostles' Creed, which we say just about every Sunday, says only that Jesus is going to take part in the judgment of the quick and the dead, meaning there the living and the dead, as well as a general affirmation of the resurrection and the everlasting life. The Nicene Creed says only that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that His kingdom will have no end. And in addition, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's it. Nothing else. If those are taken as standards of broad Orthodox Christian belief, then it's rather remarkable how little they have to say. And that brings me to the first point that I want to make this morning in answer to this question. The book of Revelation should not be treated like a clearly and easily understandable guidebook to what is to come. It's vague. It's symbolic and intentionally so. It was written to encourage Christians under distress and persecution about their ultimate hope. It was written to orient us toward an ultimate hope and a wider vision of God's final victory, not to be obsessed over or argued about so as to divide up the church or to sell novels. It's a book and a topic that's meant to be approached with care as a source of encouragement and perspective to the faithful for facing challenging times in the difficult walk of faith be on your guard against anyone who would have you commit to much more as a condition of good standing in a church tradition. You know, one of the perennial temptations in the church, or in any community really, that that sets down its beliefs or its commitments in a creed or a charter or set of bylaws, is to say more than is absolutely necessary. To say more than is absolutely necessary. I call that over doctrinalizing that is heaping up more and more rules than you actually have to follow more and more beliefs than you actually need to subscribe to more and more conditions for entry than are really necessary this was a trend that martin luther reacted against in the protestant reformation that john wesley taught against in his teaching and that in fact our creeds attempt to guard against by avoiding saying too much about the faith that we're baptized into. And insofar as that happens on matters that we're looking into today, they remind us simply that Christ is coming and that we have a resurrection and a new world to hope for. And that, that I think in large measure, is the biggest point that I want to come to this morning that the true heart of all of this, the book of Revelation and other parts of the Bible like it, as well as the kinds of content it really contains, the, the true heart of it all is really the topic of hope. Of hope. What is the content of our hope? How might we find solace, strength, and encouragement to keep on living a faithful life today in light of the hope that we have for tomorrow. Isn't hope an integral part of Christian faith? What do the Scriptures want to point us toward to to keep our vision on the path ahead clear? When we come to the table later on this morning to celebrate communion together, part of what we'll be reminded of in that celebration, is that Christ is coming again. And when He does, we'll join together at the table. In fact, the initial charge that He makes in Luke is to keep celebrating communion. And and He tells them there to, to celebrate this meal until He comes to celebrate it with them on that faithful day. Communion itself, along with our Scriptures and even our creeds, teach us to wait and to hope for that day, and to prepare our hearts for that day, to keep our posture in life oriented forward toward that hope, and to live in preparation for that hope, to prepare for a world where all is made right, where justice has been established, and where we start again around a table. I dare say that we can march ahead forward toward that finish line and have a sense of direction. I am certain that we can face down the world's challenges and put them back into perspective with that final victory in view. And so in opening up all this this morning, church, we also open up a fresh reminder and a fresh call towards hope. And may this hope guard and fortify your hearts. May it continue to strengthen you and give you resolve and perspective for the journey. May it shore you up in your time of doubt, restore your confidence in God's good order when the world's cynicism is creeping in, and may it be a beacon to walk towards and remind you of what's vital for the journey as you step ever deeper toward where the Lord is waiting and all of God's people said. Amen.